I'm Matt Miller of the Ditch That Textbook Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great educational podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Coming up on episode 72 of Podcast PD, Stacey, AJ, and I sit down with David Frangiosa to talk grades. The bulk of the conversation focuses on standards-based grading and what David's doing in his classroom. Let's start the show. This is Podcast PD, the show that provides you with anytime, anywhere professional development. Our conversations and guests will provide you with the learning you might get in a faculty meeting or on a PD day. Except you're going to have more fun with AJ Bianco, Stacey Lindis, and me, Chris Nessie. Let's start the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Podcast PD. It is Sunday, April 26th, 2020. It's 8.30 p.m. And I am joined by my Podcast PD compadres, AJ Bianco, Stacey Lindas, and our special guest this evening, David Frangiosa. AJ, Stacey, how are you? Doing well, Chris. I mean, quarantine is definitely catching up on us. We still think it's February. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Although we My weren't bad. in quarantine in February, so we there's not. that. We actually live in life and like enjoying things. I think I saw a movie in February. Yeah. So that, that's something I was going to ask because somebody gave us a gift card to a movie, and I made a comment to Jamie. Like, she think it wasn't like it wasn't supposed to be like for now. Like, hey, go to a movie. It was like here for the future. I'm like, yeah, I won't be going to a movie for about five years. So yeah, right. five years. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying in my house. Yeah, I only recently saw an okay. article about like when AMC theaters are going to start to reopen movie theaters. It's if they don't go bankrupt before then. Yeah, true. But how are you, Chris? Everything good? Happy Sunday. Happy recording. Everything day. is good. Happy yeah. Sunday. Uh, I gave myself a haircut today and want to go over and check out the replay. If you're listening to the audio version of this, go back and check it out. I didn't have to, you know, shave it all off. Yeah, your haircut. No, offense, no, no offense. Nah, none taken. <laughs> Stacy, how are you? I'm doing all right. Um, I have Wi-Fi, so I'll be starting next uh, tomorrow and or this week with a um, better situation than I had last week. And uh, sorry, I left so abruptly. My phone died because you know charging things was not my priority last Sunday. And uh, yeah, you know, it was good. only after about maybe five minutes after you were not on the broadcast anymore that I say to AJ, "Where'd Stacy go?" Yeah. Yep. It was crackling. It was it was going in now. I don't know if if it affected the audio because I haven't listened yet. But um, on my end, it was really hard to hear everybody anyway. So I love how you say you haven't haven't listened yet. You never listen to any episodes. I know, but there's hope, right? Like we're not part of the six thousand seventy two that you have. No, it's not that many. Sorry, yeah, six thousand seventy one. Yeah, right. (laughs) Hello to Al Spiegel out in the chat. If you're joining us on YouTube, make sure you drop a hello. Where you're coming to us from? And we are also live streaming this to uh, Twitter slash Periscope. So if you're watching on your mobile phone while you're driving, what are you doing? Please drive, pull I'm over. Driving. Who knows I'm if people that. are watching while they're driving on their phones? I just wonder who's driving at 830 at night. You can drive anywhere you want. Yeah, you, don't, you don't have to stop driving. Hey, so, oh, hey here's our first Periscope comment. What is up, Tim? It's under 2000, isn't it, Stacey? Checking in on the Periscope. Nice. It is at exactly 2000, Tim. <laughs> are you spying on my phone? What? It's at 2000. 2000. You were at, no. One day. I know. I was at 1977 last week. I get a lot in a day and I'm not driving anywhere. Understood. All right. You could get out and take pictures of flamingos, but you can't listen to podcasts. No, because I can't listen to podcasts when I run. 
I listen to music. You like my my flamingo pictures? Yes, those are some really great photos. Nice, high color, bright, beautiful, sunny day. It was I'm, not, nice. I'm not familiar with these flamingos. Well, she's uh, at I Run Tech on uh, Instagram. Go check it out. They also show up on my Facebook. I was going to say, Stacey's stuff doesn't really come across my Instagram. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> it's all good. I'm not on Instagram, but for like once a week when I go look for the new flamboyance. It's not a flock of flamingos. I just found out from one of my Facebook friends that it's a flamboyance. Which just seems so appropriate for a pink blur bird with like such long legs. It's very flamboyant. I'm hearing all the quotes of like uh, Robin Williams from The Birdcage. Just any like my ship. Right? I'm just hearing flamboyance. And, <laughs> wow, I haven't seen that in a long time. Flamingo, Me neither. Great movie. You went back to Birdcage. Wow, that's awesome. That's I did. <laughs> anyway, well, from Aladdin. Seemed, okay, all right. Yeah, go ahead, Stacey. <laughs> take move, move it on. <laughs> anyway, so Dave, welcome. How Thank are you? you? I'm doing well. How are you? All right. How are you doing during this quarantine? Uh, well, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, so just like everybody else, a uh, little nutty, you know. Uh, the sunny days are, yeah, a little bit. Uh, the sunny days are are better than when it's uh, raining, and got to keep them inside. But um, yeah, we're making do. <laughs> we got a tough week this week with. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I saw three rainy days. Yeah. Get out really. Yeah. Well, it's got to be like I used to work at a summer camp, and they said. The motto was rainy days are supposed to be the best days at camp. <laughs> is that like when it rains on your wedding? It's good luck. Yeah, That's sure. Just, Anything to make you feel better. I, guess. Tell you. <laughs> I see. Hello to, uh, to Dan Krinas checking in on uh, 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 YouTube. Doctor, Doctor Dan, Dan Krinas. I didn't say Mr. Dan Krinas. I said Dan Krinas. I, just, I, I know, you just have to throw it in. The man is due with Dr. Dan. Congrats, right. Dan. Dr. Dan Krinas host of the leader of learning podcast checking in on the youtube nice nice so aj why don't you set this up set set the stage for us tell us a little yeah. bit about dave and uh let's get this train going yeah so uh, for anybody who's not watching the youtube and listening to the podcast um there's another voice with us today we have uh, a good friend of mine and a coffee edu participant uh dave frangiosa with us he's a teacher of 14 years in both urban and affluent settings here in new jersey uh, and we really have Dave on here because big time, Dave's been performing action research on grade reform since 2015. And if you've been in New Jersey, you've probably seen Dave uh, present uh, for science teachers conventions in New Jersey and at ESET 2 Metro, which took place a couple of years back in uh, Passaic, I believe. And Dave has been creating uh, online PD courses for Eduscape and has written new uh, course curriculum centered around science. So Dave... Welcome to Podcast PD. Thanks, AJ. No problem, and thanks for being with us. So let's let's get this party started. So, Dave, tell us your philosophy on grade reform. Well, so I've been teaching, um, like I said, 14 years, and I've taught in urban districts. Uh, currently, I'm up at Pascat Kills, which is a high-achieving district, and um, I've been teaching... Uh, the special ed population, collaborative courses. And I've seen a big disconnect uh, between achievement. And early in my career, I was, you know, when I was teaching without resources, like, I was, if these students had resources, if they didn't have to go to jobs after school, if they, you know, there was a whole bunch of ifs. I was like, maybe they'd care more about school. And then when I got to Hills, I realized that that wasn't the case. And like, I kind of misinterpreted them not caring about school. They cared about school. They just didn't have the resources to um, achieve. 
And so um, getting into it, it seemed like, uh, especially the population that I taught, the collaborative uh, struggling learners, um, which I teach physics. We have 14 physics sections. Six of them are struggling learners. Uh, they're collaborative IEP sections. So you're talking over 40% of what I teach um, are students who need a little extra help. And so it kept coming back to grades. Um, so what was getting in their way is what's the point in trying when I'm just going to do poorly? I'd rather fail and not try than try my best and get a D. You know, and so um, didn't matter what I told them. Didn't matter whether I said, okay, focus on the skills. The grade will come. Uh, you know, I'll work with you. Um, it wasn't until I actually removed the grade out of frustration. It wasn't anything other than that, um, that I actually started seeing really some progress. Um, and then from that point, I started digging a little deeper and, you know, it's five years later and I've learned a whole lot more, um, really dove into the research, not so much, um, other people's models, but, you know, reading original texts like, um, you know, Bloom's taxonomy which is widely misinterpreted, um, you know, uh, cognitive load theory, um, you know, uh, Ruth Butler, her, her research on feedback and, and how to provide feedback. Uh, also some um, sociology studies talking about um, just approaching things from a strengths perspective instead of a deficit model where um, traditional grading, you're talking about you're doing poorly because these are all the things that you can't do. And now the strengths perspective is like, okay, great. These are the things that you can do. How can we grow them from here? So what are the next steps to get you to that next level? And then once you're solidly there, what steps can we take to further develop? So um, really it's all about positive feedback and incremental growth over time. So, um, you know, how we get there, um, you know, it's, it's a little different than um, what students and parents are used to. But, um, you know, it, it definitely has done very well for my students, especially during this time. Um, you know, they're not, they're not feeling that stress of that grade hanging over them. And, you know, what we're doing right now for them is independent practice. And what they're getting from me is just feedback. So, um, you know, it's really freed them up to actually just try to do things on their own. So, um, it is such a stark contrast from what I'm being asked to do. Oh yeah. What are they teaching new content, giving grades, assessing for, you know, content retention. So, you know, it's almost, it's business as usual, but in the virtual environment. Well, for me, this is business as usual. You know, this is, this is how I've been training my students in September is, you know, um, anybody trying to make a shift now and asking students to do something that they haven't been used to since September, it's not going to land well. You know, so if you've been teaching content and you've been looking for attention to shift to a model that I'm doing now wouldn't be successful either because, you know, they don't have any of those habits in place and might actually be more stressful for them. So like, it's not something that I would recommend to do midstream, but I think in light of these events, it's made my students' life a whole lot easier. It's made my life a whole lot easier. So, so Dave, let's let's talk about your your classroom, right? So, yeah. 
what does this look like coming into September when I'm sure you have a reputation in your school where the kids know you? I'm sure they know what you're trying to do and what 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 your class is going to be like. I'm sure there's word of mouth. So in September, walk us through the way you introduce this to your students. Uh, that's something different because I know we've spoken and I know a lot of other teachers are kind of buying into this here and there, but not a lot are practicing this with the standards base in, in their classrooms. So what does it look like for your, you and your class in September? So in September, um, when they come in, you know, we spend the first probably 15 minutes just talking about this is going to be different than any class that you've ever had. This is what we're looking to do. When you're here, you work, and we're just trying to get a little bit better over time, and we jump right into um, a questioning activity because in science, that's one of the most important things. So I just want to get them in that mindset of any time they walk in my door, they're doing work. you know. And so um, I really don't get into all the specifics of this until I've established that my classroom is a workspace because once they have in their mind that maybe today's not a work day, that's in their mind every time they walk into your room. And you're going to have to take the first 10 or 15 minutes just to say, okay, no, no, today's really a work day. So like I, pro- I established that for the first week and just the importance of the scientific process, which we'd be doing in any grading model, right? That's something we're doing investigations, we're doing labs, we're asking questions, answering questions. So we just lay the foundation for that. And then once they get comfortable with me, then we start talking about, okay, now you, you know what I expect. And that's usually happens in like week two or, you know, you know what I expect. Here's how you're going to be assessed. Um, the whole year is laid out for them. So I give them a grade translation chart. So how the standards um, will be translated to an actual grade, because whether people know it or not, even if an entire school district is gradeless behind the scenes, they um, they translate that to a GPA So I'm not going to fight something that's inevitable anyway. So I know they care about the grade. We're going to minimize it, not take it away. Um, So I put that out there and I say, okay, I'm going to help you get whatever one of those grades you choose. You know, um, I'll lay out the path for you. I'll coach you towards that. Um, You know, I'll give you the feedback. It's up to you to decide whether you're willing to take the steps And it just really changes that relationship from like that adversarial relationship where now it's me and you arguing over a grade over that deficit model of this is why I took points and them saying, well, I deserve those points to more like a coach in the classroom where it's just like, okay, great. Here are your strengths. And then here are the things that you can do to improve those strengths. And, you know, over that first week when we're talking about questioning and the scientific approach and um, they actually start to see that and they're getting that feedback and getting used to it. So then when I show them this model, it's just like, okay, yeah, that makes sense because I've already experienced it. So I really let them kind of dive in and experience what I'm talking about before I lay out the entire model. And the other thing that we do at the beginning of the year is we expect everybody in our room to be a novice. We don't expect them to come in knowing anything. If they do, great. But, you know, we teach it from the ground up. So, um, and in our rubrics, we actually show that. So we block out everything above the developing level. So you say, okay, right now we expect you to be a beginner. We're targeting developing. 
right? So we want to move you one step. So we block everything above that. And our focus is solely on how do we move from step one to step two. And for them, it's such a small step that there's no pressure. And so they say, okay, this is manageable. And then once they see that that's manageable and they gain some skills, um, you know, so this, this is the whole idea of schema. So it's harder to build knowledge than it is to expand it. So once I can get them to try, once I can get them to build that initial knowledge, I can expand it from there. And so that's kind of what we do is we structure the class in such a way that they have to take these steps. All right. And so um, we do that from day one. David, when you first started this, what, and I always use the term pushback, but what type of questioning did you get from, you know, co-teachers, administration, parents, and what does that look like even today? Oh, it's much different today. But um, admittedly, when I started, I had a very flawed model. Um, You know, um, I knew why I was doing what I was doing. I didn't know the best way to accomplish it. Um, you know, but I did everything right leading up to the implementation. I actually gave a couple months of lead time. I had parents come in for information nights and said, this is why I'm doing this. Um, you know, and I laid out everything from like, you know, that, that fear of like, you know, that, um, perfection paralysis that we were talking about, AJ, Mm -hmm. like, you know, students won't submit something if it's not perfect, like that grade was holding them back. So, uh, you know, I laid all that out. I told them what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, how they could track their students' progress, and that this was a work in progress. And if things needed to be adjusted, they'd be adjusted to reflect what we were trying to accomplish. So before I even implemented the model, whether they agreed with me or not, they trusted that I was trying to do what I thought was in the best interest of their student. So I had some parents that were, how dare you do this in their all important junior year? Um, you're going to be the reason they don't get into college. Um, you know, so like there were, I, I got some pushback. My yeah. co-teachers thought I was crazy. Some of them still do, um, you know, but Um, to be honest with you, I really didn't care because I know what I'm doing is what's right for my students, for me personally. Um, you know, at at least the students that I teach, um, you know, uh, they've responded very, very well. So, um, in the beginning, students didn't understand it, didn't like it. I switched mid year, which was a terrible idea. Um, but I'm glad I did because I have a lot of great data. Um, so, but regardless of that, like, you know, at first they're just like, this is the dumbest thing ever. I hate it. And then by the end of the year, they're just like, okay, it makes sense. I get what you're trying to do. I probably wouldn't have done as well if you didn't do this. And so even within that, that flawed model, I got a lot of good feedback to where it's just like, okay, I'm onto something. I have to keep going. And so then I, I took the summer, I kind of retooled everything. And at that point, one of my coworkers, Elise Burns, who's fabulous, um, she saw, because we teach in the same room, and she sees my students, and she knew what they were doing in the first half of the year. She saw what they did in the second half of the year, and she's just like, I want in. And so from that point on, her and I started working together and just having somebody else to bounce ideas off of. I'd kind of hit a plateau when I was doing it on my own. 
and then having somebody else to say, yeah, here's why that's not a good idea. Or, you know, I think this will work. And then just talking it out about like why you're trying to do certain things like that really um, pushed this model over the top. And, you know, and it wasn't until the third year that we actually had, uh, we were using a generic rubric that was, um, you know, pretty much how independently students can do work, which is like, it's so hard to assess. And so we went to more concrete language about using I can statements. So, you know, I can do this, I can do. And so we had, um, it was like 30 I can statements. And then what we started to do was um, put them together and well, they have to do this one before they can do that one. And so we started to order them and then condense them. And so right now we're at nine standards. Hmm. So, and they're based on the science practices. And so we track nine standards throughout the year. Um, and so now we can really communicate. We can walk them through a learning progression. So at this point now, I get virtually no pushback. All right. Um, but I can also communicate exactly why I'm doing this. I have the research to back it up. Um, you know, I've been doing it for five years. I've collected my own data for five years. Um, you know, and I mean, from everything from how students enjoy the class to their stress levels to, you know, um, so, and I, I sent that over to AJ. I mean, like it's, I've surveyed almost 400 students and I did a great analysis on almost a thousand. So, um, you know, I'm making sure that what I'm doing is actually improving learning on top of that, like, you know, the, the pace of our course, um, you know, and the, the depth that we're going into each topic. So, um, you know, I'm actually teaching more, more in depth. The kids are producing higher quality work, um, more independently. So everything about it is, um, you know, it's so much better for me personally than what I was doing prior to the shift. So, um, and when students see that and parents see that and, you know, they're, um, there's a lot less pushback now. I, I mean, it sounds great. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you said that you go deeper and it affected the pace of your course. How did it affect the pace of your course? Because I know that sometimes um, the fear is the deeper you go, the slower you go. So you, you're not going out as broad because you have to go so deep. Well, so here's, here's the difference. We slow down in the beginning. So we make sure that they have a firm foundation of skills and we don't move on until they have that foundation of skills. So like going back to that whole cognitive load, it's easier to expand the skills. What was happening, and it wasn't until we actually slowed down and started blocking out the higher levels of the rubric that we actually had the success and picked up the pace. Um, so, you know, um, we make sure that students know how to conduct an experiment, how to formulate um, a response to a conceptual question, how to write a conclusion, how to solve problems. And like, we have a very systemized approach. So if they don't know how to do something, they go back to that system and they walk through. And basically we built our model around like five words. First level is try, right? So kids are never going to improve if they don't try. And then the second level is explain, why are you doing what you're doing? So just getting them to think about why they're doing what they're doing 
um, you know, that's huge. So we make sure, like that's our developing level. We make sure that they can explain to me, I'm choosing this answer because it's related to the law of conservation of energy, right? And so now, okay, great. You have a reason for why you chose this answer. And then we say, okay, what does the law of conservation of energy state? So now they have to explicitly say, well, the law of conservation of energy says energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change forms. So now the answer is. So now we're going from that explain to now they're explicitly explaining that. And so, you know, once you get them in that habit and you don't have to say, okay, now for this topic, here are the things that you need to do. They just have that framework. And so then with each unit, the way we address content is they have to take a content mastery quiz where they have to get a hundred. So it's the vocabulary and the understandings for that unit. So um, if you look at content, as you go through, and we had originally had content standards for each topic. And what we noticed is level one was they knew the definitions, right? And so if that was level one for every single one of them, and they didn't know the definitions, they couldn't progress through that standard. And so it was unfair to say they didn't have a skill if they didn't know definitions. So we kind of tease those apart and we make sure that they know the definitions and understandings and they have to, that's the foundational concept, right? And so just that whole systemized approach, they have to know those within the first week of the unit, right? And they're given every definition at the beginning of the year. So if they want to work ahead, they know they have to memorize these. They know they have to know these going in. So they can work ahead, which has allowed us to go a little faster. And even if they don't work ahead, they know that, okay, I have to know these definitions in a week, and then we're going to start applying them. And so, um, you know, the depth, the pace, um, you know, it's, it's picked up from there. There was an old adage that someone shared with me when I first started um, coaching. She was like, start, so start slow to go fast. And it sounds like, like you're, you're, and you know, as an elementary school teacher, one of the things that we've talked about on the show is, um, you know, really building that foundation in the first six weeks for us. So like, you know, being responsive classroom, Mm -hmm. doing those first six weeks and kind of, you're just doing it in one content area with a depth of knowledge that's going to um, far exceed anything that I'm ever going to get to in one year. But that's awesome. Thanks. I got a question, David. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a few years. years. Yeah. Five years. And everything you've said so far speaks to the success and I'm I'm sure there's been you know some stumbles along the way. You mentioned how you had some issues at at the beginning. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this has impacted the people that you teach with? So has this spread to the science department? Are there other areas and other teachers that are on board based on what sounds like a lot of positive data? So have you been instrumental in changing grading where you are? Um, so the model that we're running right now, it's me and my coworker, Elise, who are doing this. We have probably about 20% of our staff that are experimenting with alternate assessments. So, um, you know, and we differ in a few ways. So there's other people who are, um, experimenting with redo policies, which, um, that's probably one of the biggest knocks that people have on alternate assessment and standards-based grading. Um, and I'm right there with them. We don't do reviews, you know, so we're, we're, um, 
I'm against that except for, um, you know, building that foundational knowledge. So somebody has to continue to practice that stuff until they have that foundational knowledge. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we have probably about 20% of the staff. Um, the first person in our district, uh, to do alternate assessment was, uh, this guy, Matt Marone, um, uh, English teacher at PV and he was doing an open classroom and him and I, um, philosophically, we wanted to get to the same place, but our approaches were, were very, very different. I was the first person in my building. He was the first person in his building. But, you know, right now we have about 20% of our, our staff, 15 to 20% of the staff um, doing some sort of this. Um, you know, I know I have um, two other colleagues that I work very close with that are implementing portions of this. One of the other physics teachers is doing lab standards. He does it just for lab, but he's an AP teacher. And so that's a different animal. So that's very content heavy. Um, you know, the pace of that um, is, is much different. And so, you know, uh, but Elise also teaches AP as well. They just have differing philosophies, but he does it for um, the, the lab standards. And then one of our chemistry teachers, um, she's in the process of trying to get something like this off the ground, but you know, she only has one section of the chemistry course and, um, she teaches our research in molecular genetics. So she's hammered with that. And so the timing issue, it's a lot of front loaded effort. And so there's a lot of people who aren't willing to do that piece of it. I think people would be more open if I said, here's a product, all you have to do is run it. Mm -hmm. Um, but like that front loaded effort, um, of just repurposing assignments and, you know, building out that learning progression and the learning language. Um, you know, like I said, we're five years in, so there's a lot of people who aren't willing to invest five years. Um, you know, so, um, there's some people that think it's a, a good idea. There's other people who say there's no need for it, but, um, you know, it, like it, it varies on who they teach and what they teach. So, so to piggyback on Chris's question about other people within your department, has this, has this, um, moved outside of your department, say to social studies or, or, um, language arts or. Yeah. Language. Arts, well, so like I said, this started, um, with language arts at PV. So, uh, it's expanded in that department. Um, the math department, uh, they're, they're doing more with, um, like that whole redo philosophy, um, you know, but they, they are experimenting with alternate assessment. So I, I can't call it standards-based grading. We'll just, you know, there's a lot of different types of alternate assessment. So, um, and like their model is definitely different, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just different. It's just different. Yeah. yeah. But I like that every, every department is kind of taking a whirl on some type of alternative assessment um, and not making it this archaic Scantron. I you know Bruce isn't here anymore, but I know he just had a big Scantron thing mm-hmm. that he posted on Facebook um, or using a more traditional set of assessment where everyone's doing the same test on the same day, yeah. the same expectations. So, so and in terms of uh, testing, we approach that very differently as well. So um, we give, uh, it's essentially a quiz every Friday. We call it a checkpoint. 
um, being that their last assessment is what they're based on, uh, their grade is going to be based on, um, those checkpoints are not worth anything. They'll never factor into their grade. So it's a 20-minute quiz. They take it. They don't turn it in. I go over it immediately. So what we found over doing this is that the immediate feedback was the most important thing. The quicker you could um, get students uh, the feedback of what they needed, what steps they needed to take in order to improve, the better the success was. So these checkpoints happen every Friday. They take them. We go through the entire thing on the board. Um, I said, if you made this mistake, like, you know, um, like circle it and write, um, you know, whatever it is. Like, so I'll give them uh, helpful hints. And so I point out not just like the perfectly correct response. It's just like, okay, here are the common mistakes. If you did this, um, this is probably where you made your mistake. Check that. And, you know, and then our tests, we have unit tests just like we normally would. Um, they're a lot shorter. We only have, um, one question per standard and we use the the concept of low floor, high ceiling. So if you've ever read any of Joe Bowler's work and Mm -hmm. that's something that she promotes that whole low floor, high ceiling. Um, and so it's something that any student can engage with, but the students who really understand what's going on can expand on it. And so same thing there, um, that's, we update the standards at the end of every unit and those we actually collect, we write our detailed feedback on it, give it back to the students. Um, and you know, uh, I like that before I give it back to the students, I actually like to have them come in and meet with me. Um, we do a lot of conferencing and I like to go over it with them and say, okay, um, you know, this is what you did. Um, this is how you can improve that for next time. Um, and so we update the standards with each unit test. Every unit has a project as well. So when I talked about the nine standards, we have four that are assessed through those tests. We have um, three that are assessed in labs, and then we have two that are assessed through projects. Um, So that's how we're getting our nine standards, and they're all based on the next-gen science practices. So, um, And then as we go through unit to unit, um, our target increases. So like, you know, in unit one and two, maybe we're targeting developing. When we get to unit three, we're targeting proficient, right? By unit five, we're targeting advanced or whatever it is. And that also depends on course. So we run the same standards from AP and down to our uh, collaborative class. So our expectation just varies. You know, physics is physics. The, The skills are the skills. So, um, you know, the rate of progression changes with the ability of the student. So that's how we, we modify that. And that's how we modify our support and we modify our expectation. So, so tonight we're talking with David Frangiosa and the conversation is revolving around grades and standards-based grading as as he shared over the course of the first part of tonight's episode. Uh, We want to let you know if you're joining us uh, in, in the chats and Twitter or on YouTube, uh, if you've got questions for David that you'd like us to uh, to pose to him, uh, you can put those in the chat or you can go to podcastpd.com slash join and we'll welcome you into the show if you'd like to come on and ask David your question face-to-face, so to speak, in this uh, COVID live streaming world that we live in. <laughs> Stacy, do you use standards-based in, in the elementary classroom? 
We do, but it, it's it seems to be a um, completely different animal from what David's talking about. Just because you know, for us, it's district wide. It is our report card, so it's not just um, you know a, an alternative way to offer assessment or grades. Um, but we never. It's when we switched to standards based. We never. I was never a teacher say for one year when I worked in a, a completely different district and I only lasted there one year, our philosophy did not mesh. I was never a teacher who gave out letter grades to kids, which makes sense because until this year, I'd only taught third, first and second grades. So there's not a lot of letter grades that should be going out to children um, of the, of that age. Um, but yeah, we do have a standards based report card. And like Dave's saying, you know, it's, it is all about the progression and and recognizing um, the capacity to move into that, like each each developmental step. So an area where a kid might be having some difficulty in September, there's always going to be the capacity to grow and expand, as Dave said, you know, on that on that knowledge and information. And hopefully by the end of the year with with work, um, good instruction and and you know support from home kids can can be achieving and proficient what's interesting though is you know our system in my district is is one two three which which kind of like levels it out um and takes away the traditional abc grading system right because most kids the elementary elementary level also don't fail but my son's school district when they were in elementary school um they had a four-part grading system. And then that kind of, like, it kind of, you know, you're a four, oh, you're an A, you're like an above average student. Like, you could play those mind games. Whereas, like, when I think when you reduce the number of of um, progressions in each of the standards, then you are, are, you're kind of removing some of the, you know, likening it to letter grades. See, I actually went the other way. We have uh, five levels of progression. And so I, I did away with numbers altogether. Um, once the system allowed me to, and I'm very fortunate, my school has allowed me to change my grade book. Um, you know, they, and they're very progressive when it comes to that, very supportive. Um, so my Genesis no longer has numbers in it. So our levels are beginner, developing, um, proficient, advanced, and expert. And we have, like I said, we have a grade translation chart. So at the end of the year, um, in those nine standards, so we went through with um, what would our ideal student, what would their learning progression be throughout the course of our year? And we set that as the A. So that's our ideal student. So this is what they should achieve uh, in each standard by June. And so then we said, okay, what is the minimum that we would accept from a student in order to give them credit for the course? And that became our D. And so then we went through and we did every grade like that. And we, we built out this grade conversion chart based on those different progressions. So there's no direct translation. They can't play that game. Now, um, even when we, we did it with numbers, it still wasn't a direct translation, but you're right. People would be like, oh, I got a three out of four. It's a 75. Well, no, it's not. It's just like that's the level of progression that you're, you're hitting. Um, you know, and 
as you're getting to those higher levels, the jump between steps gets bigger and bigger because they have more skills. So, you know, it's um, what might take them a couple of weeks to go from beginner to developing might take them a couple of months to go from proficient to advanced. So, um, you know, they, they can't play that game. Yeah. Dave, what does this look like? You mentioned how you've got this great conversion and that helps you translate grades at the end of the year. Does this also apply during the, the marking periods or semesters during say interim report time? Uh, and, and the part two would be, I'll, I'll let you answer that. Then I'll come back with part two. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. We only do semesters, so we don't do. Cool. Okay. So okay. Um, we have, so basically we said, where should they be in their progression by the end of semester one? And then um, if they're at that point in the progression, um, it's usually pretty accurate within half a letter of grade. If they continue that rate of progression, they'll end up with this grade. Um, so we've kind of set that mid-year mark based on that learning progression because we, we know what materials we're putting out there. We know um, how we're teaching to each level. So we know where they should be at each point in the year. And so it's easy for us. And that's why um, this really had no bearing. The whole pandemic had no bearing on my grades is because I knew where they should have been on March 13th when we had our last day of school. So for us, we're just shifting our um, our benchmarks to, well, as long as they were there when we had face-to-face meetings and they maintain that through the end of the year, you know? So um, that was an easy shift for us. All right. Part two. Sorry. Under normal circumstances when we're not, you know, learning virtually, what impact has this had on things like parent-teacher conferences during the year and has this opened the door and this might be part three, but I'll throw it in now. Has this created the opportunity to have students maintain anything like a portfolio throughout the year where they've got evidence to support what they're meeting and what they're doing? How does that look? Yeah. So um, parent meetings have gotten way easier Um, just for the simple fact that uh, I can now say, this is what we're expecting your student to do. This is what they can do. These are the steps that they need to take to get to this level. Um, so it's real cut and dry and, um, you know, there, there's no mystery to it at all. And, uh, the good thing is now I can actually generate interventions through our child study team and guidance way earlier in the year. So, you know, I'm usually in talks with CST and guidance, October, November saying, Hey, I've recognized that this student is falling behind. We need to put in interventions now rather than it being the end of May and saying, Hey, what can we do to get this kid across the finish line? So from, from that perspective, I can identify when a student is really struggling and, you know, I've identified students, like I said, that early and some of them have taken the interventions and done well. Other ones have ignored them and they've wound up failing the class. Um, you know, and so, uh, what was part three again? Uh, the opportunity to have students, do they maintain portfolios or are they collecting evidence? Yeah. So, um, they do have a portfolio. And so what we do is we have evidence of every different type of work. So we have those nine skills. All right. And so they have to have their most recent lab report. They have, which is, um, annotated. So, um, they have the previous week's lab report so they can actually see 
it's this is a, a living document. It's not just um, it, it's not just let's just keep adding work. We want to see their most recent evidence because that's really what we care about. We want to see where they are in their progression. We don't need to see where they started. All right. So we have um, the two most recent labs, both annotated. We have peer reviews. So they're reviewing each other's work. Um, we have our projects. Um, so we do engineering design challenges where, you know, they're, and we go through that progression as well. So they have to keep um, a log of all that and they have to have their, um, their project report. Um, we also have them keep uh, a journal and all of their checkpoints for that unit. And so between all of that information and their unit test, um, we have enough to have a, a clear picture of where they are. And we use those during our conferences. Like they'll bring those in, we'll sit through and we'll go through every standard in one sitting and they have it all in a portfolio. The other thing that we do is we have minimum course requirement. So uh, as part of that portfolio, they have a sheet that has, um, they have to do a certain number of labs per unit, a certain number of peer reviews. They have to take every test. Um, they have to do every project. Um, they have to pass all those content mastery quizzes. And so they have this, um, this minimum requirement checklist and once they complete that, they're eligible for credit in the course. If they don't do all of that, they don't pass the class. And that gives us enough information to make a professional judgment on where they are in their learning progression. All right. And, um, you know, that typically doesn't even come into play. So, like, students are doing most of the work. And we have that in place because um, – and what I tell students is – you know, I know you're an athlete or you have a job or you're in the play or you have a concert or whatever it is. It's a busy week. Skip this week's lab. As long as you've done every other one, missing one, if that's the exception and not the rule, it's not a problem. You know, and I'm sure every teacher would be reasonable like that. If a student's doing everything, you give them a pass if they miss one assignment. So we kind of built it into our model. Um, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, so they they have that, but students tend to do everything because once once they get used to getting feedback, they want more feedback. Right. Now, you also shared with us you're building out this uh this great resource, this great website which we will pull up for those watching on YouTube and we'll have you walk us through it for the podcast listener. Uh but we're going to go to the quote unquote the phones and uh We'll see what happens when we take live questions. So you ready, David? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's welcome in friend of the podcast, Al Spiegel. What do you got for us? Hey, everybody. Um, I'm I'm using my um, I'm using my God given initials, AJ, because I want to be like you. So I'm I'm using the Jonathan this week. So wow, you know, notice that it's AJ Spiegel. So um, (laughs) you know, I was I was I was thinking as as David was talking, um, I saw in the chat too. You know, the colleges dictate all this. I, I like the idea that, you know, that we can grade based on what you could do, not so much, you know, based on a number. But, you know, how many of the kids will say, well, what does this mean out of a 4.0? You know, I have a, uh, you know, if I don't get a like 102 average, then I'm not, this school is not going to take me. And it's just, there's this, this fear, this, you know, I have to, I have to get a good grade. You know, I have to get, you know, uh, even though I, if I asked half my colleagues, would they even know 
does that number represent what the kids have learned or didn't learn or the work they can do? It's, it's just this, in some sense, an arbitrary number. But we're so fixated on that because I'm not going to get a scholarship. I'm not going to get uh, I'm not going to get into the school. I'm not going to get anywhere in life because my number is is, um, you know, is what it is. Excuse me. And I think that's um, that's such a, a big fight that, you know, I think if, if I if I said to the people that I work with, we should go to something like this, which I, 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 I believe I think they'd have a stroke because they just it would just be it's so mind blowing because we, we, you know, and I'm a Burton Catholic, David. So I'm mm-hmm. right down the road and yes. the same, that same highly competitive, like your kids are going to college, you know, and it's not just, they're going, they're going, you know, tier one, top tier Ivy, that kind of stuff. And it's almost like we're, we're bound. Like we, we, our hands are tied. We can't do anything creative with grading because you know, what college is going to say, well, what does that, what does that mean on 4.0 scale? That's the first question we get, you know, what's that on a 4.0? And that's, that's a huge, it's a huge fight that we, you know, well, that I don't know how we win. So there, um, there are districts that there's the new England consortium. Um, and I actually visited a school Windsor locks, which, mm-hmm. um, the entire school is going standards based. So I, I think at this point, um, their juniors have never seen a grade in their career. All right. And there are a bunch of schools who have signed on with the New England Consortium that said they will accept these transcripts. But uh, I don't know if you were on before. Every transcript is converted to a GPA, even if the students don't see it. So um, so even if a school says that they're gradeless behind Mm -hmm. the scenes, they convert it to a GPA that they sent to schools. So the, the school the schools don't care how they get the GPA as long as they can see the GPA. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, and, you know, check into the New England Consortium and they have uh, a lot better information on that than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it hasn't been an issue. Um, and the one thing that I will tell you is, yes, grades are still a concern, but they're not the focus anymore. So what winds up happening, and I, I did a great analysis on a thousand students. Mm-hmm. So between my classes and my colleague, Elise, who's uh, running the same system as I do, and she teaches the AP students, mm-hmm. um, you know, so what we found is on average, the grades after we shifted to this model have gone up half a letter grade. So students are responding and doing better grade wise as well. And, you know, the initial thought might be that we're grading easier um, or that like, you know, we're allowing redos or, you know, people have misconceptions about being gradeless and uh, a couple of things. We're not any easier on them. We're actually, uh, as I discussed before, the, the standard that we're holding them to is higher. They're doing more work. We're going more in depth with the work, um, you know, and we don't allow redos. Anything that would ever count towards a grade, they don't get to redo. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And I, I know that a lot of the standards-based proponents will probably, um, you know, be mad at me for saying this, but I'm completely against the idea of redos for grades because that's exactly what it is. It's for a grade, not for learning. And it's completely counter to cognitive load. So if you have a student who doesn't do well on a test and then you say, okay, you have to jump through all these hoops and retake that test while you're learning new material, 
Now they're behind on two content areas. And then they're going to be behind on the third because they're not going to know that. So they're perpetually behind. So the idea of redos for me is counter to a learning progression. So um, the way, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, this really, I think, brings into the fold the idea of true summative versus true formative assessment, where what are we grading versus what are we not grading? And earlier you talked about the the weekly quizzes that they're not graded, but you give it to them, they get that instant feedback mm-hmm. and you can continue to progress. Yes. So, you know, formative assessment in the classroom, that is uh, the most valuable thing for student growth, right? Formative assessment with uh, immediate feedback. If you can get there, um, that's where your students are going to see the most progress. All right. Um, so, you know, I think the the hurdle that most people face is they're so content driven. You know, my content's important. They need to know this. And I don't disagree with that. You know, I teach physics. So, you know, it's physics is a lot of content, you know? So I don't think there's anybody who can tell me. Uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> No, I look, hey, I love it, but you know, I there's there's not another content area that can say, "Hey, we have to do more," you know, like you should see the list of, of things, you know. Um and we wrote out all of those um all of those I can statements for our entire curriculum. And I have probably about 20 pages of things that students are supposed to be able to do. And so what we did is we boiled it down to a common theme. How can we separate this? What, um, you know, what's overarching between all of these topics? And it's the science practices, all right? And so we actually track skills throughout the entire year, all right, where the content is important and they do need to know that. And that's handled in a different way. And they must pass those foundational concepts in order to get credit for the class. So that's how we manage the content piece. But in terms of grading, if they don't know how to construct an argument, they're never going to do well on a content test that asks them to construct an argument. So if they gain that skill in March, you can't go back and retest the content from September. So, you know, we felt that. Um, it was a clear representation of what they were doing if we separated out content and skill and only graded on or practice. David, what are your thoughts on Amy's comment here in the chat that she agrees that uh, I do agree with redos at the middle school level, but that it wouldn't need to be allowed on all assignments. So in your mind with grade reform, can we differentiate in the different levels of education between elementary, middle and secondary? So here's the thing. Redos are necessary if you are trying to build a skill, right? So um, people need direct instruction and repetition to build content knowledge, right? That, that's just it. You know, there's no other way to do it. So if the redo is to reinforce learning and, you know, it, it's to build that conceptual understanding, absolutely. Um, but if it's solely to increase a grade, there's no room for it. Right. And Amy, thank you for your question. Yeah. And I have to, you know, to Amy's point, I know there's, um, there's a middle school teacher that I used to work with who, you know, 
there's not much that we're doing to change our grading system in my district, but he traded, he, cha- he changed up some of the things that he was doing in his um, teaching and assessment within the unit. So I agree with you. Redos in certain content area um, do c- kind of create that backlog, but when you're within the unit and, you know, he was a language arts teacher. So, you know, a, a redo or even um, withholding the grade until, until feedback was taken in by the student. That, and that's essentially what he started doing, right? So like the kids would start writing um, their pieces within the unit and he wouldn't give them a grade. He'd give them feedback throughout and it was constant. And there were, you know, you have your check-ins, his check-ins weren't necessarily always on a Friday, but they were, um, there were a lot more of them um, than the typical conference that you would have in in a regular writing workshop. And he was trying to really be meaningful and deliberate with his feedback in a way that he hadn't been prior to. And not until they took in that feedback, did he feel comfortable giving them a grade. And then, so, you know, you could have multiple pieces throughout the unit. um, And again, you're building on those skills and you're, and you're improving your craft as a writer, but, um, withholding the grade is what really got kids to kind of take in the feedback that they were receiving from their teachers. Because I think a lot of times, you know, and I'm sure those of you who teach at, Al, you said you teach at the, at the um, higher, higher ed level as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Right. Like I remember when I was in college, like I would just look for, for my grade. Oh, it was an A, boom. I didn't care how many other red comments, blue comments were on the margins or whatever. It, it didn't matter, you know, and and that's really what he's trying to instill in them, that it's it's about the feedback and the learning and the grades will come if, if you know, if you're still using them, um, will come after the learning has 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 come as well. Yeah, that that's a great approach. I do need to clarify. So we do reassess because we have these skills that go throughout the entire year. So, you know, we start the year with electricity and magnetism. So, you know, and they get an assessment at the end of that on, you know, how they write a conclusion. Then when we move on, um, you know, to kinematics, they get assessed in that skill again. So we're reassessing. They're not doing um, the same content over and over. That's what I mean by redo. We're reassessing the skill. We're not redoing an assignment just to improve a grade. So like, you know, and I think that's where we need to make the distinction. Is it a reassessment of their, their level of performance and a skill, or are we redoing the same content? Right. And like both are valuable in different situations. You know, in my, in the, I teach one of the graduate classes I teach is in supervision. And what I want students to be able to do is to be able to observe class, you know, like that's the skill I want them to learn. So they, they go out. And they go out, you know, and, and I have them do an actual observation because I, it's not so much that, you know, yeah, the theory is important and all that, but I want them to be able to do that skill. And how I assess that is looking at the report that they write, you know, and that's the, that, and, and it's pretty much if you, if you do that and you understand how to do it and you apply the theory correctly, then it's, that's, you know, that's an A, that's it. Like it's, it's, I, I'm more, I'm, I'm more concerned about preparing them for a career in doing that skill than anything else. So Dave, when you think about feedback, what does feedback look like in your classroom? Is it face-to-face? Is it just through a chat, um, whether it's, you know, through, through, uh, through forms, like what, what does feedback look like? 
when you, there, when you give to the students? There's a whole bunch of different ways. And so um, we do whole class feedback. We do individual. We do conferencing. Um, you know, we do small group instruction. Um, you know, so it, it's pretty much it all depends on the scenario, how they get their feedback. You know, they'll submit um, they'll submit assignments through canvas and I'll, I'll put feedback on their assignments in there. So some of it is, um, you know, digital, um, you know, a lot of it is face to face. A lot of it is small group instruction. Um, and then, like I said, there's nothing wrong with whole class feedback. So when you're giving, um, this descriptive feedback, it becomes very time consuming. You know, that, that's the other part of this is that um, you need to find ways to manage that. And so um, sometimes we don't evaluate the entire lab submission. So we'll say, okay, you know, you have to write up the whole lab just to practice it, but I'm only going to give you feedback on your experimental design. Next week, I'll give you feedback on your conclusion. All right. And on the next one, I'll give you feedback on your data analysis or, you know, um, so, the other way you can do it is, you know, I'm giving this third of the class feedback on this one or like it, it all depends on where you are um, in the year, what the students need, because, you know, I have some students that are just they're killing it like they're doing awesome and they need very little feedback from me. So, um, you know, it they they don't have to hear from me as often. And it's just a couple of little clarifying things where there's other students that are struggling that may need a little more guidance. And so I'll focus on them a little bit more. But in the beginning of the year, it's pretty much, um, you know, the, the way that we kind of ease into the year, um, we start with just doing conclusions. And so we give everybody feedback on conclusions until they can do that well. And then the students that are still struggling with that, I'll give them feedback on their conclusion and their experimental design where the people who have actually progressed to the point that I need them to, they just get feedback on their experimental design. So it really all depends on what's going on in the classroom, um, what the assignment is, um, what the students need. Are the kids brave enough to come to you for feedback before they turn in work or do they just kind of wait for it to be the time um, the see, feedback is due? I, I don't, um, I encourage them to attempt it on their own I was like, you know, the more you do on the, on your own, the better my feedback will be because it's truly your work, right? If they're coming to me for feedback and then giving me my work, that's really not helpful for them. So like, I, I really encourage them to do this stuff independently and they're just like, yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, but the fact that there isn't a grade attached to it, they don't have that fear of the negative impact. So they're just like, yeah, all right, I'll give it a shot. And like, you know, when we start the year, I say, what's the worst that happens? You have to talk to me, you know? And so like, and just getting into that mindset, um, you know, they're really, they're, they're not shy about asking for feedback, um, but they are more willing to do stuff independently. I have to say, I find when, that when my kids come to me and, you know, they ask for feedback, it happens a lot more in writing um, than other content area, but. But a lot of times, I guess, in social studies, too, with like projects and stuff. But when they ask about, uh, you know, taking a specific approach or, you know, does this sound better? Or does this sound better? That's when I know that like my teaching has has begun to stick because it's not just like I'm doing it this one way or I don't care what that feedback is. It's like I'm really thinking about this one part 
and how to improve this one part. And I always find it really powerful too when kids like um, instead of like you, I know you and and I see the value in it too. So I'm not I'm not knocking it when when you say like I'm giving them feedback on their conclusions or I'm giving them feedback on this one particular part. But I always like throwing it at my kids and saying, you know, you let me know where you want feedback. Do you want feedback on your beginnings? Do you want feedback on your conclusion? Do you want your feedback on your transitions? Like then I know that they're taking a a hard look, a critical look at their work. And they're kind of thinking about like, what area of growth do I want to focus on in this one particular assignment, this one piece or in this one, this one area. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> oh, go ahead. I was say, and Amy uh, also commented that feedback is the most important during the process. If the majority of the feedback is in the final product, you've missed your moment as a teacher. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying in, in those small group instructions, they're getting, they're getting guidance and you know, that, that feedback is different based on the levels. Like, you know, so your struggling learners, they get more guiding questions. So, you know, what do you think would happen if, have you tried that? Like, you know, um, and then like, and as they do that, then you say, okay, great. Now try X, Y, and Z where, um, you know, you're more high achieving students, you're going to ask more leading questions and, you know, kind of probe and challenge. And, you know, so um, that the feedback and the interaction, it varies from student to student, level to level, day to day, you know. Um, And I mean, but a lot of us do that without even thinking about that, you know, but what we've done is, we've created a scenario where the students need that feedback in order to progress. And they can't just say, well, I got an A, so I'm doing well, you know, cause that's like the biggest myth, the biggest lie that teachers tell the students is, you know, a kid who's getting an A in September and October, they look at that and they say, Hey, I'm doing great. And they don't look to improve anything. And then, you know, in, in December, maybe they're getting B's and then like, you know, in February and March, they're getting C's and D's. And they said, well, I was doing so good, but they never improved, you know? And so like when you're using letter grades as feedback rather than, okay, here's where you're at, this is what you can do. And these are the things that you need to do to get better. um, You know, it totally changes the dynamic. I know this is just scratching the surface. I know there's so much more that, that goes into this idea of grade reform and standards base and alternative assessments. But I think one of the things that you're doing right now to really help people kind of understand this is, is through your through your website that you're creating. So I don't know if you want to actually discuss your website. It, it, um, it's a bit.ly. So it's bit.ly slash guide to grade reform. And uh, what, what are you doing with this site? So um, just as I create resources, I'm throwing them up there. So um, the, the landing page... Uh, I did a a presentation down at the New Jersey science teachers convention and a lot of people were asking me why I made the switch. And so, um, it was hard to answer in a tweet. So as you can see, it's three pages (laughs) of my ramblings about why I made this switch. Um, and so then from there, uh, I started making a few infographics just to kind of give an overview about, um, the, the path that I took. So, um, know, just how to approach a transition to an alternate assessment um, and using this as a guide. So um, 
you know, that from the whole communication piece, uh, understanding what you value as a teacher, how to create a learning progression around what you value, um, creating that language that describes the learning progression, uh, all the way up through implementing your model. So um, it's just meant to be like a little resource for people to, um, you know, have an overview by no means in an infographic, can you just follow that and implement a standards base, but it can give you some ideas. Um, and anybody who wants to feel free to reach out to me, I, I'd be more than happy to help. Um, there's a video that I talk about in, um, in my essay, and it's uh, Mark Rober. He is um, a former NASA engineer. Um, one of my favorite YouTubers. I love his YouTube channel. <laughs> he, he's amazing. He's absolutely yeah. amazing. But he did this TED talk on the Super Mario effect. And basically, nope, I've seen it. yeah, it's, it's awesome. About um, So he basically tricked 50,000 YouTubers into taking a coding challenge. And um, it's it kind of sums up that um, he took away fake internet points and people tried less where if he didn't take away those points, people tried more and the people who tried more were more successful. It's a really good video. Um, so I, I just put it there. Um, articles. So um, as I collect articles, uh, I'm going to put those in there. Um, so this was actually uh, a piece Ed Week uh, had interviewed me and one of my students for. Um, so uh, I'm going to start collecting some articles uh, I wrote one for ASCD. Hopefully they pick it up um, and hopefully I can throw that up there. Uh, and then just, you know, I'm going to put like some student quotes and testimonials, um, you know, and then um, I have some slide decks of presentations that I did um, with some, some more of this information. And then finally, I, I just have all the citations for all the research. Um, you know, so if people want to dig into this on their own, like don't take my word for it. Um, go to the primary research, read it yourself. You know, um, that's what I did. Like, you know, I talked before about how people misinterpret Bloom's taxonomy. I mean, I've been teaching for 14 years and I I've heard about the hierarchy. Um, you know, and then when I went back and read it, um, there's, there's no hierarchy. It's a progression. You know, nowhere does he talk about lower order thinking or higher order thinking. You know, he talks about, um, you know, knowledge and understanding and how that's the foundation to pro progress through to application. And, you know, so uh, that's always what, you know, I believed in as a teacher. And then just that, that interpretation um, after I read the original document myself uh, really kind of confirmed that, um, you know, so I, I really um, encourage everybody to read the research on their own and come up with your own conclusions. Nice. And again, the website is bit.ly slash guide to grade reform. And that's guide with a capital G. There will be a link to it in our show notes out at podcastpd.com slash 72. All right. So, um, you know, David, I just want to thank you for joining us today and, and sharing all of the great work that you're doing. Um, you go to uh, a lot of PD, you write a lot of things and you have a lot of information to share where do you find you get your best PD? Uh, you know, I like, I really like working with my colleagues, um, you know, sharing ideas, um, you know, just be open-minded. The, the people who are in the classroom next to you are doing like some really good stuff. And, you know, 
steal as much as you can from them. Um, conferences are good. Um, you know, the, the New Jersey science conference, I always pick up stuff there. Um, you know, I'm trying to get out to, uh, NSTA, the regional in, in Pittsburgh, um, if it'll be going on in October. Um, you know, we'll see, but, um, yeah, yeah, I like conferences, um, you know, coffee edu, like, you know, that's great. Always sharing good ideas there. Yeah. Uh, so, um, just talking to like-minded people, actually even talking to people who disagree with you, you know, like just why do they disagree, you know, um, and just having to defend that, like sometimes it makes you rethink what you're doing and how can you change it, or maybe it solidifies your stance. So just, you know, um, talk to as many people as you can and, you know, talk to the people who are teaching, not just the same thing that you're teaching. I've learned a lot of stuff from ELA teachers, history teachers, math teachers. So, you know, um, yeah, just get, get outside and talk to people. Well, now, Dave, um, for people who want to talk to you, how yeah. can they do that? How can they connect with you? Um, yeah, just uh, at David Frangiosa. I tried to make it easy. Um, you know, you can hit me up on Twitter and, you know, I'll, I'd be more than happy to, to share, uh, you know, a lot of stuff with you, guide you in whatever, um, you know, whatever direction you need to go. Awesome. Well, David, thank you for talking with us this evening. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me. On that note, we are going to say goodnight. Say goodnight, Christopher. Goodnight, Christopher. Say goodnight, AJ. Goodnight, AJ. Say goodnight, David. Goodnight, David. Goodnight, Podcast PD. Thank you for checking out this episode of Podcast PD. For links to everything that we discussed in this episode, you can visit the show notes at our website, podcastpd.com. To connect with the show on social media, we are at podcastpd on Instagram and Twitter, and we share using the hashtag podcastpd. To connect with Stacy, AJ, and myself, we are on Twitter at Mr. Nessie, at iRunTech, and at AJ Bianco. We would love to hear from you, so please go to podcastpd.com slash feedback and send us an email, send us a voice message, whatever you need to do. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you share it with somebody that you think would get value from it. Word of mouth is the best way to share a podcast you enjoy, and we hope you enjoyed Podcast PD. We appreciate you listening, we appreciate your sharing, and we love creating this podcast for you. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.